0: I am Cindy Coleman, and I'm an alcoholic. Hello, I want to thank Monica for inviting me to come and share with you. She's not here tonight. Um, I'd like to welcome the newcomers to AA. We're so glad that you're here. And um, I just celebrated a birthday. March 10th was my AA birthday. And I celebrated 46 years sober. Woo! The odd thing about that is I'm only 38 years old. <laughs> That's just a testament to the great program I work. Um, but believe me, I never planned on being in AA for 46 years. Doesn't that sound like a nightmare when you're a newcomer? Like, oh, I want to go to AA for 46 years. Um, I am... Uh, Half Eskimo, and I'm from San Bernardino. There are not a lot of Eskimos in San Bernardino, and there are none now. Um, <laughs> I hated that place, you know, it's so hot and so smoggy. And, and um, you know, with that kind of DNA, I'm known to be a little stoic sometimes. Um, And my gentler half is German. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I have an old idea that, unfortunately, I guess it's unfortunate, I don't know if it is or not, still visits upon me in sobriety, but I had it long before I ever started drinking. And that old idea is whatever it takes to make it here, I don't have it. That's the way I felt. And for me, when I drink whiskey, uh, I not only belong, I like own the place, you know? And I love the way I felt when I was drunk. I am described in the big book uh, as being restless, irritable and discontent. And that's the way I felt when I was sober, but if you give me the right amount of whiskey, I just love you. I mean, I want to throw my arms around you and rock with you and weep and, um, you know, throw up a lot and and tell you how much you mean to me. And I love that feeling, but I don't feel that way when I'm sober, you know, when I'm sober, I just, uh, you know, I can't deal with people, you know, I, I'm someone who likes the idea of people, um, but never people in particular. Um, <laughs> except for Eddie and Penny, because I'm riding home with them. <laughs> I always say that's the bummer about driving to like places like Orange County, you get to use the diamond lane, but unfortunately, they always want to ride home. You know. <laughs> <laughs> My father ended up with custody of my two brothers and me. This was back in the 60s. And that didn't happen very often. So he had three children under the age of five that he was raising. And that's the kind of drinker that my mother was. She lost custody of us. So my dad raised us. And, um, you know, I have a lot of Really great memories growing up, and we were dirt poor, but I didn't know we were poor, so everybody else in the neighborhood was poor as well. Um, but I also have some not so great memories. Um, but it's what's happening. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I get very distracted very easily it's a I'll just start over <laughs> um, yes yeah, so I just you know I mean I felt out of place there and um, I started drinking really early obviously I got sober two months before my 16th birthday which is crazy. I look at other 15 year olds and I think, God, they're just babies, you know, mm-hmm. but my dad describes me as someone who was 15 going on 92. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I felt. I was tired. I was so tired. And I didn't do a lot of drugs. Um, in fact, I did very little. I just smoked a lot of pot. Um, You know, and just feeling out of place, and I couldn't stand the way that I looked. I hated that my eyes were slanted, and I'd come home from school, and I'd sit on the edge of my bed and kind of stretch my eyes out so they would become round, (laughs) and it worked, but I started smoking dope, and they just shrunk right back (laughs) up. But by the end of the party, everybody looked like me, you know? We left San Bernardino um, and lived in a place called Sunny Mead for a while and had a stepmother there. And it's so funny, like I haven't even brought her up in years. I just kind of forgot about it. But uh, she used to just beat the crap out of me all the time. And she didn't beat up her children and she didn't beat up my brothers. There's just something about me that she didn't like. And so, um, that marriage between her and my father ended when I ended up in a fist fight with her and it's so crazy. I was like 11 years old, you know, that's such a baby, but, um, I just, I I think I was like born old, you know, um. We um, moved to Riverside, and Riverside is right to a lot of my drinking. Um, I was in a gang for a while, and I'm sure you've heard of us, the Seven Leafers. Um, Gangs then aren't like they are now, you know? We just got in a little bit of trouble here and there and rolled drunks at the park or whatever. Um, But they kicked me out. And it's so funny, because like one of the questions is, did you seek lower companions? And I thought, no, I always looked up to Speedy, Spike, and Spider, you know. (laughs) Maybe I was their lower companion. And, you know, I'd have like one friend at a time, and I would just burn them out. And then I would get a new friend, and then I would burn her out. And it was pretty clear early in my drinking that I didn't drink. Like they did. And one of my girlfriends, um, God bless her. She died a few years ago. Um, and she came to AA with me in the beginning, but I don't know if she was ever an alcoholic, but she said, why don't you just have a drink when I have a drink? (laughs) That's a good plan. Okay. That should help me to not drink too much. I'll just drink when she does, except she didn't drink enough. You know, so that didn't work. Um, not even for an evening. And uh, my brothers were drinking. Um, they were in ROTC, and I was what you refer to as a stoner. And we didn't get along. And my little brother and I got in fist fights all the time. There was always like you know black eyes and bloody noses and swollen lips and. Um, Our older brother, we would fight with him, but he was so strong, he would just punch us one time and that was the end of the fight, you know. But my little brother and I went toe to toe all the time. And right about this time, um, my dad was a probation officer and he handled drunk driving cases. So he decided one afternoon that he should attend an AA meeting because he was sending all of his clients there. And he should find out what it's about. And he's been sober ever since. So he's been sober since August 15th of 1974. And while he was a newcomer, uh, my brothers and I were just tearing it up. Uh, all of us were getting in trouble. And um, my dad was this newcomer. And like any good newcomer, you know, he didn't work for his first year of sobriety. And then he finally got his. First job, and it was at Kellogg Mental Institution, graveyard shift, running the adolescent unit. And it was wonderful because he went to his AA meeting every night and then he went to work. So he'd be gone, um, all the meetings back then started at 8.30 p.m. So he'd be gone about 7.30 p.m. every night and then he'd go to work after the meeting and then come home the next morning. And we didn't have any adult supervision. We just had a party at our house every night. And my dad was working with these crazy kids all night. He'd come home and find crazy kids passed out all over the place. And uh, my dad, God bless him, he talked to me just a very few times about my drinking. Early in his sobriety, he went to go talk to this man named Chuck C., who lived down here in Laguna in Orange County, because he didn't know what to do about these three teenagers that were driving him crazy. And Chuck suggested that he attend Al-Anon meetings. So my dad did, he attended Al-Anon meetings. And um, so he learned in Al-Anon not to hound me about my drinking, but he did bring it up a couple of times. And the first time he brought it up, I remember telling him, I'm not hurting anybody. And that looked like, and it felt like the truth to me. And then the next time he brought it up sometime later, I hit a new level of honesty. And that was, well, if I'm hurting anybody, it's only me. Because I couldn't stand to see the truth. You know, if, if I really saw and I got glimpses of it, of how much I was hurting my father more than anybody, um, it made me drink. And I remember listening to Chuck C when I was new and we we would follow him around when he was speaking and he would talk about his wife who was a non-alcoholic and how she would say to him, if you loved me, you wouldn't do it. And he said, it's because I love you that I do. And I understood that because when I got glimpses of how much pain I was causing my dad, the drinking made me drink. It was like I drank to overcome drinking. And my father, um, I, I was getting in all kinds of trouble. Um, you know, I, I told you, I, I really just didn't do drugs. And um, one particular evening, this, these two girls that both used to be my friends at different times, started hanging out and they brought over a fifth of Southern Comfort and I love Southern Comfort. That was my drink. Well, anything was my drink, but I love Southern Comfort. And, you know, my brother's drank um, like, I don't even know if they make stuff anymore, like TJ Swan and Pear Ripple and Annie Green Springs, like all these cheap, (laughs) cheap wines, you know, I mean, wine was what I drank when I wasn't drinking you know, and (laughs) I liked the hard stuff, you know, I wanted to get downtown quickly, and um, these girls brought this bit of Southern Comfort, and I don't know why we didn't drink out of the bottle that night, we normally did, but we got those old, um, back in the 70s, they used to make them at McDonald's, those Ronald McDonald glasses with, like, the Hamburglar and Ronald McDonald on them, and we broke out the glasses and I drank mine, I drank what was left in the bottle. And then the way I look at things, is, if you're not done with yours by the time I'm done with mine, I'm rightfully entitled to yours and I'll take it. So I grabbed this girl's half a glass of whiskey and I knew I couldn't hold it and sit down at the same time. So I carefully placed it on this arm of this couch and this chair that were next to each other. And as I sat down, I knocked it over. And I just started crying. I just started sobbing and wailing because that was the last of the booze. Now, I was not based anywhere near reality. Didn't dawn on me. I could get more or steal more or somebody would bring more. That was just the last of the booze. And I went into a blackout that I came in and out of for three days. And the last thing I remember before going into that blackout was um, I was struck with a deep and profound love for my little brother. And I wanted to go tell him. And I knew he was at the college that was two blocks away from our house, driving around with a security guard, you know, while they looked for illegal activity. They were smoking pot. And out I went to go look for my brother and tell him how much he meant to me and how much I loved him. And um while I was out there, I was attacked by a cannon and they were firing this cannon at me over and over. And it's kind of an odd sensation, but I could feel things embedded in my face. Um, there were little chips of rock and glass and different debris and I would wipe it off and you know, blood was coming down. And it seemed like the second I got it wiped off, they'd fire another load at me. And I was told later what had happened was I was just climbing up a real steep hill. And with my dead drunken weight, I just kept going face down into the ground over and over and over. So I looked like I had been terribly beaten up because I had gone on a walk and we got, to the alley behind my house and my little brother and his best friend were lying against the garbage cans and their shirts were ripped and they had chains wrapped around their necks and what appeared to be blood all over the place. And so of course I'm sobbing and it was a prank. They were pulling on me, but I was so drunk. I thought he was still dead. So, you know, they're shaking me and um, That's not working. I still think he's dead. They take me in the house. Our older brother is there and then he punches me in the face (laughs) so I can see clearly. And I just, they told me, I just took my clothes off and they just put me in my bedroom and closed the door. Well, earlier that evening, my dad had invited me to an AA meeting. He didn't have to work that particular evening and he was going to go hear this man named Chuck C. talk. And he said, Chuck hasn't had a drink in 29 or 30 years. I don't remember what it was. But I remember thinking, why would you want to go listen to someone who hasn't had a drink in 29 years? And he told me he was taking David. And David was this um, cute guy. He had long blonde hair and blue eyes and um, smoked marble, played the drums, you know, everything I wanted in a man. And. <laughs> David, I had met an Alateen and I had gone to two Alateen meetings and they asked me to not come back because I was drunk both times. Like, and I love that because they were serious about their programs, you know, but they asked me to not come back. But I remember David and my dad told me that he was taking David to go hear Chuck. And I said, why? He said, David's an alcoholic. I said, oh, God I'm sorry and off they went to go hear Chuck talk you know my dad came home didn't have to work that night felt really spiritual because he just helped a newcomer just heard Chuck talk at an AA meeting and walked into the living room there were all these kids there as usual and he asked them you know where I was and they said well she went to bed she's got a headache so um, he went into my room and he found me lying there and um, completely white for the first time in my life. And <laughs> I missed it. Um, I had long hair then and I had eaten spaghetti for dinner that night. Yeah. And I hadn't eaten in a while. So I was just lying in this sea of pasta. And my father... Uh, thought I had taken a bunch of pills and overdosed, which I've already told you, I don't do drugs. They're dangerous and they can kill you. And (laughs) so he carried me into the living room and asked these kids what's wrong with her. And they said, she's got a headache. So he threw me into the car and rushed me over to Riverside Community Hospital. And they started to pump my stomach. And I did it for myself. I threw up all over my dad, all Mm -hmm. over the doctor sat up, I said, oh, F, I'm drunk again. And I passed back out. And I was told um, my first two days sober that I slept in the bathroom. I either had my head up on the toilet seat because I was like detoxing. This is like detoxing what we did in the 70s instead of like rehabs, you know. (laughs) So I was detoxing and I either had my head up on the toilet seat or on the cold floor. You know how that cold floor feels so good when you're sick. And one of the times uh, my dad came in and he poured buttermilk down me. Yeah. I mean, I don't like that stuff sober, but he poured buttermilk down me to get some nutrition in me. I don't know why they did that. seems like a lot in the seventies, give you buttermilk and jelly donuts um, at meetings, but, um, Anyway, I, of course, threw it right back up, and I looked up at him, and he didn't say anything, and I couldn't say anything. I couldn't even talk, and, of course, I was throwing up, and um, he just put my face back down on the toilet seat, and, um,
1: you know, he had had a
0: discussion with me, and the gist of it was, if you live here, you have to go to AA. And I did not have a fight in me. I was so tired. And on a Monday night, it was the last time I came out of that blackout, and he was shoving me into the back of this Chevy Nova, and they were taking me from Riverside to Pomona to the Triangle Club for my first meeting. And I sat in the back of that meeting, and I was still shaking and sweating and throwing up. And... I don't remember anything anybody said at that meeting. What I remember was after the meeting, a real pretty lady like Penny came up and she talked to me after the meeting. And she had a real soft voice and she was very kind and she was clean. She like probably showered that day, you know? And (laughs) Martha's her name and Martha's what I remember. And I remember Martha was like this old timer you know, NAA, and you know, we both stayed sober Uh, as far as I know, she's still sober if she's still alive, but we saw each other many years later, and I found out she only had like 68 days of sobriety. But, you know, when you're brand new and still detoxing, like 68 days, that was like a long time. And That started my journey in AA. I went to a ton of meetings. Now, I never heard anybody say it, and I'm sure they did. So if you're new and you don't hear anything else, you can hear this part. Um, We don't even smoke pot. (laughs)
1: Like,
0: I thought that's how you stay sober, right? I mean, how else do you stay sober if you're not smoking pot? And um, this guy named Lyle, he was like six, five. um, You know, he, he picked me up and he stood me up on it, on a chair and I was about eye to eye level with him. And, you know, he's yelling at me. He's like, yeah, we don't drink here. We don't smoke pot. We don't take pills. And we seldom shoot heroin. (laughs) I just said, don't you think that's a little extreme? And I changed my sobriety date. So that's the date I have now, March 10th, 1977. And uh, I have not always been the delicate flower that you see before you tonight. <laughs> and, and I had nine sponsors in my first two years, I was somewhat reluctant to take direction. And then I, at two years sober, I was crazy, you know. Um, When alcohol was removed, I was left with everything that drove me to drink in the first place. So sobriety did not seem like an answer to me. And my Wednesday night meeting, I'm in the Pacific group. When I first started attending, there were about 250 people there. And I was overwhelmed with crowds. I couldn't handle it. And I talked to my sponsor and she said, sit in the front row and don't turn around and that helped me sat in the front row and i did not turn around and like i had a problem like even grocery shopping i still don't like it today but i I can do it but um i just shopped at 7-eleven you know (laughs) that's where i got my food from and you know i would count on the people after after the meeting at coffee, they would buy me dinner a lot. You know, her is just a punk kid and um, at, at two years sober, you know, I was still angry and obnoxious and hostile, prime relationship material. Um, so you know, his girlfriend went to Hawaii, so I made my move. She's an allowance, so I figured she could just release him. And uh, <laughs> We started this crazy relationship and we broke up and got back together about 18 times. We did it for the group, you know, give them something to talk about uh, so they can get out of themselves. Just had this crazy relationship. And, you know, I was still at this point, the only time I felt okay was when I was sitting in a meeting. And the rest of the time, I just felt like I was struggling to get to 8.30, you know? And I got sponsor number 10, and she lasted for a couple of years, and then she moved down here to Orange County. And I did not know who to get as a sponsor. She was at this point, and for me, sponsorship has been one of the most transformative things in my life because I learned to trust another human being. And so I just got her sponsor. And her sponsor was this guy named Clancy. So I asked Clancy to sponsor me. And he was sponsoring this boyfriend that I broke up with all the time. And um, he said, all right, we'll try it. And he sponsored me for the next 39 years. And that's a really long relationship. But that relationship changed my life. And if you ever get an opportunity to listen to one of his talks, um, I encourage you to do that. But one of the things he talked about was how important identification is. Because I believed that he knew how I felt. And because I believed that, I was willing to take direction that I wouldn't otherwise have taken. And, uh, you know, I was going to his backyard. They call it the yard. Um, you'll hear some speakers talk about the yard. And um, we would go over there and the guys would go across the street at some point and play softball. And the women stayed in the backyard and we played volleyball. I'm a little bit competitive and we would play volleyball and someone would get injured and I would yell out new player Um, and my friends are like you're supposed to see if they're okay you know go go ask them if they're all right. I said well clearly they're not you know that just seemed like extra words you know. So they put me into sensitivity training. There's a girl in our group who had this very loud distinct sneeze and you could hear her from across the room. I don't care how big that room was. Um, And when she sneezed, I was supposed to look for her wherever she was sitting and tilt my head and say, "Uh, are you okay? And then blink, because apparently nice people blink. And, (laughs) you know, and they used to tell me, you know, like, we're playing this volleyball game for fun. And I said, winning is fun, you know, and just super competitive. And um, my little brother ended up getting sober. He got sober eight months to the day behind me, and he's still sober. So he's got 45 years. And um, our father, God bless him, um, has Parkinson's dementia. And I was able to live with him and take care of him for like two and a half years. He lives with my stepmom now in Bakersfield, but I lived with him and I would take him to meetings And the second he found out that this man sitting next to him was a newcomer, he would light up and he would start talking to this new man. And you couldn't even detect the dementia because he had been doing it for so many years and newcomers were so important to him. And um, my relationship with him was terrible when I got sober. And the steps changed that. My relationship with my mother was terrible. I had met her when I was one year sober because my dad made amends to her and that brought her back into our lives. She came down from Alaska for, I don't know how long it was, seven to 10 days. And I stayed for about 15 minutes. It's one year sober. I was just full of attitude and, and obnoxious and, um, when I read my inventory to Clancy um, and did my amends he had me start writing her once a month I had to send her a card and the card said to Amy from Cindy and after a few months it said dear Amy and sincerely Cindy a few months later I started putting a line or two in it and I was so consistent with this and eventually got to make a face-to-face amends with her. And thank God for AA because you guys taught me how to make amends. And I was able to state the harm that I was aware of that I caused her and um, listen to other harms that I wasn't even aware of. And she told me how this all made her feel. And and I was told at the end of my amends, I can ask her Or anybody I'm making amends to. What can I do to set this right? And thank God somebody said, you know, if somebody responds with an answer that's too vague, ask for specifics. So when I made amends to her and I asked her what I could do to set it right, she said, be a good daughter. Well, that's too vague. Like I could have taken some action that, you know, she might have missed or off the mark or whatever. So I asked her, what does that look like? And she said, you can start by calling me mom. I said, okay. And I said, what else? And she said, you can conclude our telephone conversations with, I love you. I was like, okay, Um, (laughs) not a big I love you kind of person, and um, I started doing that, you know, and that is now many years ago, and she plays a part in my life, I don't get to see her too often, Um, she still lives in Alaska, 10 minutes, thank you, and um, we have a great relationship, and I can't imagine calling her by her first name. I mean, that's just so rude, but she lost her dignity as a mother because of her drinking. And because my father has alcoholism and worked the program, he made amends to her and that brought her back into our lives. And I was able to make amends to her like AA repaired that. And, um, you know, when I was two years sober, um, and made my move on that guy uh, after a number of years, I think was about six years or so, he went out and started drinking and using. And I had something a little bit stronger than my obsession for him. And that was my commitment to AA and to a home group and to a sponsor. And that was a rough time while he was out there and, and it broke my heart. And he was gone for about a year, and he started coming back to AA. And we started glancing at each other from across the room, <laughs> and I got pregnant. So... <laughs> that's how I, um, <laughs> Clancy sponsored both of us. He said, okay, you're getting married Wednesday before the meeting. And um, I was too sick to go look for my virginal white wedding dress. Um, so I got married the next Wednesday. And uh, we stayed, uh, we moved just outside of LA. And after our son was born, which I'm, That is one of the best things that ever happened to me in AA was having my son. Um, When our son was about one, about a one year old, he started drinking and using again. And I stayed in that marriage for as long as I could. And then I would come home, I'd find him passed out and our son climbing on him, you know, and he was in charge of our son. So I left that marriage and had a terrible divorce and he could not put any sobriety together. He'd get 30 days and 90 days and 30 days and 60 days and 30 days and um, uh, he ended up overdosing um, by choking on his vomit 25 years ago. And our son was 10 years old and, you know, in AA, you're just surrounded. I didn't have to do it alone. And um, it was a really rough three years for our son, you know, but now he's um, a 36 year old man and he's given me two beautiful grandchildren that I'm crazy about grandchildren are like the best invention ever. And I have a 14 year old granddaughter and a six year old grandson. And my grandson has level two autism. And he is just the light of our lives. You know, he just is like one of one of the best people ever. And you know, the thing that I was looking for in the bottle I have found here in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous through working the steps and having a sponsor and sponsoring people um, and keeping commitments. And commitments for me were like life-saving because I don't know about you, but I walk into a room and I don't feel like I belong. And if I have a commitment, I know I belong there because I have a job. And those commitments were great. You know, I I made friends out of those commitments. because I learned about something in AA, um, you have this thing called a dialogue. That's where two people talk. And I was told that you only have to remember one thing they said. And then the next time you see them, you ask them about that one thing. So that starts a dialogue. And I believe I am wealthy because of the relationships that I have in AA, you know? and Um, I want to thank, thank you. I want to thank Penny and Eddie for coming up with me. And it was nice to have dinner with Christina and Duke and uh, my friend Becky's here and John, Um, you know, when I got to AA, I was severed from humanity. I had no meaningful connection whatsoever. And today it's very different. You know, I told you my little brother's sober and he's one of my best friends. And, um, I ended up thank um, I ended up getting another sponsor because my sponsor Clancy passed away, um, from COVID a couple of years ago. And that was really hard for me, you know, because I mean, he knew everything about me and, I waited for a couple of months after he died before I got another sponsor because I kept waiting for him to come back. You know, <laughs> I figured if anybody could do it, it would be him. Wow. Um, but now I have another sponsor, Tom W from Oakland, and um, I know just to do the footwork. You know, you can't have a thirty-nine relation, thirty-nine year relationship, and in, in two months. You know, you got to put in the work, and um, he has. Uh, said a few things that have saved me, and um, if you're new, AA is the best thing that has ever happened to me, and you probably won't remember anything that I've said tonight, and that's okay. Just please come back again, and thank you so much. (laughs)